Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Henry Toe. He is the Chief Investment Officer at CB Capital Advisors, which is a financial services firm based in Newport Beach. Welcome to the show, Henry. Thank you, Jordan. It's great to be on. Let's just start with a little bit of your background uh, leading into uh, the firm you're in, but kind of give us a little bit of the history you've had leading into this firm. Sure, Jordan. Um, so my, my background is in investment management, institutional investment management. I advised hedge funds and pension funds and endowments on the asset allocation, uh, especially pertaining to global macroeconomics, which, as you know, is a very important topic right now. So I helped them with determining the percentage they need to invest in, for example, global equities, uh, which geographical area they should focus on, which one they should underweight. Um, I also look at things like, you know, gold prices, um, U.S. tips, um, and other macro drivers of asset prices, such as inflation and global liquidity, central bank policies, things like that. So CB Capital Advisors, only works with institutions, or do you also deal with individuals? Uh, mostly institutions, although we work with uh, many family offices. So, you know, families, at least, you know, over here, they tend to set up their own investment firms to manage the family's net worth. So we do that. We also work with um, ultra-high net worth individuals as well. Okay. So you have a methodology and a kind of a philosophy of investing, which you call global macro absolute return. Right, that's the that's the kind of unique thing that you have. Is that correct? Correct. That is correct, Jordan. So let's kind of break that down into pieces here. So, on the the global macro, before we get into that, what is kind of the overall kind of returns that you're trying to achieve? At what level of risk? Sure. So we we, we think that the world right now is gearing towards everything is correlated. Everything that um that that you look at on the on the ticket tape, for example, you look at Apple, you look at even a small cap company uh, here in Irvine, California, everything's interconnected. So we, you know, our philosophy caters to that. We think that's a permanent change and it will only get um, more correlated down the road. But the returns that we're looking for, you know, in the, in a world of very low returns right now, we're looking for a steady uh, high single digits to low double digits returns uh, with minimal risk. So we don't use any leverage. We don't use any um, derivative contracts and so forth to achieve these kind of returns. Um, so so we, we primarily use, in terms of the instruments, we use ETFs, whether it's equity-based or fixed income-based. Uh, we also use commodity-based ETFs, including precious metals. So, um, you know, it's a very diversified portfolio. At the same time, we do make some concentrated bets, um, although none of our positions make up more than 10% of the entire portfolio. So, the, you know, the goal is to achieve a steady, basically 8 to 12% annual return with minimal risk, irrespective of the global economic environment. So that's been your goal. What has been your, your actual record? What returns have you actually achieved? So so this year, you know, the, um, this year has been really pretty tough, as you may know. We're right now, we're right now about break even after fees. Uh, you know, we, we did pretty well uh, going into this year. We... Uh, we we went long treasuries at the right time. We shorted emerging markets. You know, we don't really short that often. This year has been exceptional because of the overvaluations in certain um, 
asset classes, including equities, uh, we and also the highly negative momentum trend in emerging markets and also uh, commodities. So we were able to kind of catch the downward wave in emerging markets, including Chinese Asia's and copper. Um, and then, you know, in, in August, by early August, our returns were about 7% up this year. Since then, we haven't, uh, you know, we, we gave most of it back given what happened in August, although our energy bets on the long side have done relatively well. Uh, we've been steadily going long Asia as well, and that's the, the, those, are the, the, those are the positions that are detracting from returns right now. So let's talk about, so that your goal is kind of an 8 to 12% annual return with kind of minimal risk. No matter what's going on in the world, basically, is what you're saying. Uh, that's now correct. let's go into the methodology a little bit. So you, the first part of your methodology is what you call global macro. So what do you look at around the world uh, to determine where your asset allocation should be? Sure. We, we literally hit the pavement. We, uh, you know, I was in India early this year and then Hong Kong, basically traveling around Asia looking to uncover ideas that are not well covered. Because I, I think when you, in the world of instantaneous communications today, it's very easy to get um, good information, but most of that is already priced into the market. So we do some pretty heavy, intensive research, not just to dig up good ideas, but to minimize risk, because things in Asia are still pretty much opaque, at least relative to the US. We also have a long short mandate, but like I said, we don't really, we try to avoid shorting things uh, because most, most of the time things do go up, except for this year. Um, then, then then this means that we also go, you know, short stocks. We also go a lot on currencies, commodities, and so forth. And so our, our process is very much uh, fundamental, bottom-up driven, although we also take, we then, after we come up with a list of good ideas through fundamental research, we then take each of our idea through our three pillar model, so to speak, which is which which I have used basically for the last fifteen years to determine the amount of conviction we have on each investment idea. So um, each of the three pillars, so to speak, is distinct from a time frame standpoint because there are certain things that you know are good in terms of timing and investment for the long run, for example, valuations, but not necessarily in the short run. So we try to um, put together as much information as possible on three different time frames just to triangulate uh, the really good ideas. And, you know, I can give you a rundown of it right yeah, now. Yeah, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to do the three those next. Before I get to that, though, you talk about this being an absolute return strategy. People may not be familiar with that term. What do you mean by an absolute return strategy? So the absolute return strategy is 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 basically the the the, the summary of it is really – um, to get a positive return, you know, irrespective of what the market does, because so many of us just go long, you know, stocks in the U.S., which means that you're benchmarking yourself against S&P 500, or you just buy treasuries, and so you benchmark yourself against uh, U.S. treasuries. So, but in the long run, you know, there have been periods of time when, for example, during the 70s, as you know, both stocks and bonds had negative returns after inflation in the 70s. So we don't just look at what happened to the popular assets over the last 30 years, because if you look at the 80s and 90s, frankly, those were the two perfect decades for both U.S. stocks and U.S. corporate bonds. But when you look at what happened in the 70s, uh, you know, that, that, is, that was not a good time 
And, and even though in the long run, you can say, well, over the last 85 years since the 1920s, stocks have overperformed every asset class out there, which is true. But it, but that wasn't the case, you know, for a long time in the 70s. And and when you're 50 years old, when you're 60 years old, you can't really afford to wait more than 10 years to get positive returns. So we, we, we are cognizant that global economic environments change over time. And basically, the 80s and 90s were the perfect times for equities and probably, you know, from 09 to 014 as well. And I, and I think times are going to get tougher in terms of trying to squeeze more returns from your equities. You know, I, I look at the S&P 500 today and I look at valuations and those are high. I mean, not just talking about price to earnings ratio, because they are still at the 90th percentile in terms of valuations going back to the 1970s. When you look at profit margins, as you know, those are at record highs. Um, companies are making record profits as a percentage of their revenues. People are not getting uh, wage increases. And now you're seeing the turn of the tide, so to speak. You're seeing Walmart, you're seeing Target increasing their minimum wage. And you don't know uh, what's, what that will, how much that will squeeze corporate profits down the road. So we, we're cognizant of the long-term cycles. And that's why we try to you know, look at, okay, what, what outperformed stocks, you know, for certain periods of time in the 70s or even the 40s or the 30s. And yeah, so we try to look at... Term. Yes. Correct, right, correct. Let's go into the three pillars of the model that you put. And the first one is, you were mentioning a little bit, valuations. So what is the time frame that you're looking at valuations? And what are some of the traditional ratios you're looking at? I mean, you mentioned the stock market's quite high right now and profit margins are high. So you're saying there's not much room on the upside when things are already highly valued. So how, how is it in what time frame do you look at valuations? Yeah, Jordan, that's a good point. When you look at equities, for example, um, for, I, I look at the long-term return potential of U.S. equities, and I only see a 3% to 5% annual return over the next 5 to 10 years. And, you know, for the risk that you're taking by buying equities, I don't think that's very attractive. Now, when we um, – so let's just start off with the three-pillar model. The first pillar that we look at, like you said, is valuations. And, and valuations – are very important, as we all know, because that determines the price or the value you're paying for everything that you're buying. So if you buy at a good valuation, chances are that you'll get really good returns down the road. But now valuations, though, are not a very good timing indicator, because as we all know, what happened during the late 90s, right? Um, you could have bought Yahoo in 1997, 1998, and arguably Yahoo was already overvalued. But tech stocks in general and biotech stocks just kept on growing up and up and up. And so, um, you know, when we're you general sense, right? you're saying it gives you a general sense if you're undervalued or overvalued, but it doesn't give you a timing of when to get it out particularly. That's what you're saying. Correct. So, so we look at valuations from a longer term standpoint. To me, given my studies over time, it's more of a 12 to 36 month time frame. So it's, it's a relatively good um, determinator of long-term returns, but not necessarily a good short-term timing indicator. Um, within, within equities, we look at the traditional ratios, for example, price to earnings, um, price to earnings to growth. We look at price to book. And like I said before, we also look at profit margins. Um, there are other asset classes that we look at from a valuation standpoint. And these are kind of harder to measure because you know you don't necessarily have things like price to earnings ratio so as i mentioned well, before, things like that yes correct correct exactly exactly so for example uh, we, we actually have to, 
We have to take a break, Henry. We're going to be right back. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Henry Toe. He's the Chief Investment Officer at CB Capital Advisors, which is a financial services firm based in Newport Beach, California. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Henry Toe. He's the Chief Investment Officer at CB Capital Advisors, financial services firm based in Newport Beach, California. Welcome back to the show, Henry. Thank you, Jordan. So we were talking about the three pillars that you use to determine the uh, degree of investment conviction you have. The first one you talked about was valuations, uh, which is like a one to three year time frame. The second one is global liquidity. So what's the time frame for that and how do you measure that and how does that affect your conviction or lack of conviction in a particular asset class? The global liquidity, I think, is very misunderstood because when you look at how the modern world is is run, basically it's still run by global central banks in terms of financial systems. And the the, Fed, the central bank that sits on the top of the pyramid, so to speak, is the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve has gotten more powerful over time, especially as the European Central Bank and, and the Eurozone started making all these policy mistakes. So money flowed out from the Euro back into the US dollar. And so 
Um, when you look at global liquidity, it's a very important part of the pillar. First of all, it has a shorter time frame. It's a, to me, it's a six to twelve month time frame. So, for example, if I look at, um, let's just say, I look at, uh, I, I conclude that from my studies that okay, global liquidity is expanding. That that means you want to buy stocks, right? You want to buy commodities. You want to buy stocks, things that would take advantage of basically more money in the system, so to speak, higher inflation. So you want to buy all those things and real estate as well. So, so, um, and given my past studies, whenever global liquidity has increased, it still takes time to filter through to the system and, and asset prices. But in general, it's a, it's a much, much shorter time frame. It's a better indicator in terms of timing than, than valuation. So, g- given the history, I've looked at it takes about anywhere from six to twelve months from higher liquidity to flow into asset prices because at some point the liquidity um, will flow back to asset prices as investors start to take more risk, but it will still take at least six months for them to do that. So the way that we measure risk, we look at global central bank policies, for example, um, how what, 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 what biases the Federal Reserve has right now, what Janet Yellen is thinking, uh, whether they're going to ease, whether they're going to tighten rates. When I look at during 08 and 09, that was a seminal period. You know, I studied uh, Ben Bernanke for a long time and I read all his papers and I knew that he was a student of the Great Depression. He was going to implement all these tools to combat the financial crisis. So in 09, I had no doubt at all, or maybe I was 99% convinced that uh, Ben Bernanke would speedhead um, things like quantitative easing, top, for example, to rescue the US financial system. But when you look at where global finances are today, it's still controlled by the Federal Reserve. So that's the one institution that you always want to look at. The second thing that we look at, which is very important right now, is institutional fund flows. So asset prices, as you know, aside from how much money there is in the system, you also need to look at the flows, where the money is going, where where it is fleeing from. So today we look at, for example, we look at the Brazilian downgrade, you know, S&P, last Wednesday came out with a downgrade of Brazil's sovereign debt from investment grade to junk territory. So what's going to happen as we speak? And then on Thursday, they followed up with a downgrade of 30 different Brazilian state-owned companies, inc- including Petrobras, the biggest company. Were, were you surprised year. by that, Henry? I, I, I was a little bit surprised. You know, I had no doubt in my mind that Petrobar was not an investment grade company, but no one was expecting them to, to downgrade that quickly last mm. week, especially given the turmoil we've been experiencing in the emerging markets over the last several months. So you're saying that that's going to make a lot of global outflows from Brazil. And is, is that going to spill over to the rest of Latin America as well as far as global outflows because of fear that this will go elsewhere? I think it will. I think you're seeing some decent valuations right now. But as we, as I mentioned before, valuations is not a good timing indicator unless you're willing to hold for three years, at least three years. And so when you look at Latin America right now, they they have they have some cushion in terms of their foreign reserves. So in their central banks within you know the five Latin American countries that we track, they have enough of a cushion to prevent a systemic breakdown. But they don't have enough to ease policy because right now. For example, Brazil is they're experiencing high single-digit inflation. Colombia, their inflation rate is at about five percent, so they don't have any scope to ease monetary policy anymore. And frankly, and, and so even though their economies are slowing down, they're being forced to start raising rates. And so when I look at that, 
you know, that I, I believe that is going to drive economic growth downwards further and also drive out more capital as well. So it's not a good combination to have uh, higher interest rates, higher inflation, and uh, institutional money flows away from you because they're worried about downgrades, is what you're saying. Correct. And, and the, you know, in my mind, that's, that those countries in Latin America need a lot of reforms to convince, to be able to convince international investors to get back into those markets. So in general, I mean, global liquidity has been very strong. Uh, European central banks been doing their own quantitative easing for a long time. Japan has been printing money like crazy. China has been adding a lot of debt. U.S. has been doing quantitative easing until the last year or so. So, I mean, you'd think that we'd be awash in global liquidity, and this would be very positive for the markets. Is that not the way you see it right now? Yeah, you know, Jordan, it's not the way that we see it. And the reason is because despite all these quantitative easing policies that we've experienced, in my mind, the, the central bank that has the most power is still the Federal Reserve. And in my mind, the Federal Reserve has already been tightening since 2013 because they started tapering in 2013. So when you look at how much liquidity they pushed out beginning in 2009, early 2009, and then when they ended in 2013, you had the, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve was at about $4.5 trillion, and it's still at 4.5. So they're not really easing anymore. And there's also been, a, in terms of fund flows, there, there's also been a scramble, so to speak, back to the U.S. dollar. So, yeah. so, so people are just really worried right now, and especially with the with the close the existential crisis that you have, the euro. You know, the euro is not regarded as a competitor to the U.S. dollar anymore, so it's not really adding to global liquidity in my mind. Yeah. So we have this coming Thursday, uh, the meeting everybody's been waiting for for months. It seems like. Uh, as far as global liquidity, what is your view of what the Federal Reserve is going to be doing on, on interest rates? Yeah, I, I think I think um, what the Fed would do is they would not they would not hike. Um, if they if they do hike, I think that'll be very bad for the markets. When you look at you know I look at four major asset classes um, that 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 corresponds to different economic environments depending on where inflation goes and GDP growth. So these four asset classes. Uh, long-term U.S. Treasuries, which tend to outperform during um, deflation and recessions, and then another asset class is U.S. tips and gold, which tend to outperform during high inflation and low growth, and then another asset class is commodities, which tend to outperform during high inflation and high growth, and then another asset class is global equities or U.S. equities that tend to outperform during low inflation and high economic growth. And going back to 85 years, going back to 1926, there's never been, there's only been two years when all four asset classes have underperformed cash. That was 1931. The second one was 1981, when short-term interest rates were at 15% because Paul Walker wanted to kill inflation once and for all. So this year is shaping up to be another year for that. And if, if that does happen, if the U.S. Federal Reserve does raise rates in on Thursday, then I think that will happen, which will be very bad for the markets next year. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they will step back because you already see some tightening with the rising U.S. dollar and also with rising yield spreads. And now with the downgrade of Brazil to, to junk, you know, all these countries in Latin America are not going to get the financing, the liquidity anymore. So you already have some tightening. Um, and when the dollar is strong, it makes it harder for these emerging market countries to pay their debt back, which is denominated in dollars, right? So raising rates and making the dollar go up even more would make it even more painful for these emerging countries, right? Exactly, exactly. When you look at 
all the other central banks in the world, with the exception of Bank of Bank of England, they're still they're they're all still easing. They're so they're still all easing right now. So I think it's going to be really hard for the Fed to raise in September. I don't see a raise, frankly, until late January of next year at the earliest. So, so that's what you see. Is that what you agree? You think it's the right thing not to raise rates right now? Correct. Correct. Yes. Okay. So that's your second uh, pillar. The valuations is the first pillar. Global liquidity is the second one. And what is the third pillar and what is the time frame that you look at for that one? The third pillar is very short term. The third pillar is investor sentiment. And the, and the time frame for that is three to six months. So very, it's very good to look at um, retail investor sentiment uh, both in the United States and overseas as well, because um, because retail investors tend to sell at, at market bottom. So that's a very historically that's been a very reliable indicator. So I look at a lot of retail fund flows. I look at server data, margin debt outstanding. And so when you combine investor sentiment with my two other indicators, valuations and global liquidity, if they are all bullish, then you know we say okay, this is a buy right now. This is a, a very high conviction idea right now. And so what are the investment center sentiment indicators showing after we had the big drop in August? What are they showing right now? It's getting better in terms of, uh, from a contrarian standpoint, retail investor sentiment has been, has been getting more bearish. But the, um, you know, with regards to both U.S. stocks, international stocks, and even emerging market stocks, people are now way more bearish, although they're not at extremes yet. So it's going to take... I believe another correction this year, depending on how what the Fed does on Thursday and also the statement that they come up with on Thursday, I believe right now is I'm tilting towards another correction later this year. And then we look at what the data says at that point. Uh, but I think there'll be another so correction. If there's a correction, that would make people more bearish. You're saying it's bullish when the retail investor is very, very pessimistic and kind of a capitulation phase. That's the time to be getting in. Exactly, exactly. And we're not there yet. We're headed there, but we're not there yet, is what you're saying. We're headed there. I, I think the S&P 500 needs to go back down below 1900, and that will be a good time to buy. Uh-huh. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Henry Toe. He's the Chief Investment Officer at CB Capital Advisors, which is a financial services firm, mostly uh, advising institutions based in Newport Beach, California. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Henry Toe. He's the Chief Investment Officer at CB Capital Advisors. Uh, which is a financial services firm catering mostly to institutions uh, based in Newport Beach, California. Welcome back to the show, Henry. Thank you, Jordan. By the way, what is the website that people want to find out more about your firm? So you can go to uh, cbcapital.com, or you can go to uh, the research site that I run, which is cb, as in Charlie Boy, capitalresearch.com. Very good. Okay, so now we've gone through your, your methodology, what you call global macro, absolute return. The three pillars are valuations, global liquidity, and investor sentiment. So now let's kind of take that into where we stand uh, today. Um, let's, I mean, you're, you're an expert in China. You've been to China recently. Um, it seems to be a, a real driver of world uh, volatility. <laughs> what, what is your outlook for the economic outlook in China and what, how that's going to be affecting markets? Yeah, yeah, Jordan, I actually grew up in, in Hong Kong and um, I, I still work a lot over there and I have a lot of friends there as well. And no doubt in my mind, as is probably obvious now to almost every investor out there, that China is going to have an increasing impact on not just the economy, but on the financial system. You know, you look at the impacts of the recent decline in Chinese domestic A shares, and you know, only only and only about one percent of the market in China is held by foreigners, and the decline in the A shares market has impacted what's going on over here in our financial system as well. So uh, that's the big theme. I think um, China is going to be the marginal uh, driver of probably almost everything going forward because that's where the growth is still is around the world. Now, um, the, the thing that China is trying to do right now, you know, they they did a good job in terms of developing the country, industrializing, you know, uh, bringing about 400 million of the population into the Chinese middle class. Uh, but that's been driven by an export, a, a system based on exporting to the United States and also uh, making significant infrastructure investments. Now they're trying to transition into more of a consumer-driven economy. And that, historically, that's a tough transition because um, unless you are an American, you just cannot spend, you know, because as a as an American, um, 
basically since the end of, end of World War II, the U.S. dollar has been the world's reserve currency. It's widely accepted, even among the neighboring countries of China. Those countries, for example, Kazakhstan, the, those will still those countries will still accept U.S. dollar um, more so than the Chinese yuan. So to transition to a consumer-driven economy, China really needs to reform more and to also, at some point over the, the next, I think over the next 18 months or so, um, bring, their, bring their currency into the IMF special drawing rights basket. And the implication for that is that it will make the Chinese yuan, the Chinese currency to be a regional reserve currency. And that's how China is going to be able to further develop the economy and also transition their economy into more of a consumer-driven economy. What some people would say is the recent moves they've made are going the exact opposite direction. Uh, as far as devaluing their currency, that surprised the IMF. As far as all the measures they've had to rescue their stock market when it started going down, they did all these dramatic measures, um, stopped trading in tons of stocks, banned IPOs, Prison, in prison, short sellers, you know, these are all anti-market kinds of moves. Uh, I guess they they thought it was more important to do that than to get into the IMF and get their currency. So what is the balance going to be on kind of the reacting to short-term crises versus the long-term of doing what you were saying, getting their currency into the, the international basket? Yeah, I think I think Chinese policymakers have, have panicked this time. They, the, the drive to support Asia's was very was was very clumsily made, I believe, and I, I believe they have they are learning from their mistakes because they are not used to seeing all these kinds of volatility. They're not used to seeing scrutiny on their financial markets because, frankly, the last time Asia has collapsed in 0708, no one in the U.S. really paid attention to it. So now they are surprised by how much attention uh, both the decline in Asia and also the devaluation, as you mentioned. You know, it was only a 2%, 3% devaluation in the yuan. And subsequent to that devaluation, the IMF actually recognized that Chinese policymakers is trying to shift to a more of a market-based uh, floating currency where, where they fix the currency um, to be dependent on the previous day's close. So now, um, now China is no doubt in my mind shifting to more of a floating currency and by the end of this year they're, they're looking to allow currency traders and currency funds and banks around the world to start trading the yuan on their onshore um currency so, so you're saying that they, they are moving they are moving more to a market-based even though it didn't look that way it looked like they were trying to manipulate their currency lower to help their exporters that's the way it was perceived you're saying, in fact, they are moving more towards a market-based economy. Yeah, it, it was a two-pronged approach. One, one, one was, um, like you said, one was to anticipate what the Fed is going to do. Um, back in August, the, the rhetoric was that the Fed is going was going to raise rates as soon as September. So I look at, for example, what the Swiss did ahead of the European Central Bank's quantitative easing policy earlier this year. The, the Swiss depacked their currency to the euro, although the Swiss franc moved the other way, the Swiss franc went up 20% in a day. And so, you know, the Chinese yuan has already gone up 15 to 20% against a lot of major currencies. And they, they were starting to, um, to to be squeezed on the export side. So, and at the, in August, the Chinese no doubt was looking at a 
continuing strengthening in the U.S. dollar. The good thing is since August, the U.S. dollar has actually weakened a little bit, at least against the euro and the yen. So I, I don't believe, so I think it's once and done for the for the devaluation. I think, um, and you're seeing that recently as well. You're seeing- um, So they won't do it again, you're saying. And you think they might have even thought it's a mis- it was a mistake to have done that in retrospect? I think so. I, I believe so. Um, in the in the G10, the, the G20 meeting the weekend before last, they recognized the mistake, and the People's Central Bank of China's governor came out and recognized the mistake. Almost everyone, with the exception of Japan, accepted the the explanation, and I think we're good to go. So, how is this affecting commodity-oriented countries like Brazil and? Chile, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia that have been relying on selling commodities to China, if they're going to be slowing down, what's going to be the impact on those countries? You know, I, I look at these countries, like you just mentioned, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Malaysia, Indonesia, these countries were all dependent on commodity exports basically since 2002. And now with China slowing down investments, uh, these countries will have a really hard time going forward. I, I don't. I don't believe uh, with, with um, unless you're going to have dramatic reforms in these countries, um, it'll be. I, I would not recommend investing in these countries um, because they're still commodity dependent. When commodity prices were up, they really kind of just squandered the the saving. Maybe some of it was was. Um, went into Swiss bank accounts. Uh, some of it, a lot of it went to social welfare spending. Not a lot of it made it into investments or education-based investments. So unless the commodity boom comes back again, which I don't think it will, because India is probably the next country to industrialize, the next major country, at least the only major country that could even have a chance of replacing Chinese commodity consumption, and they're not there. They don't have the capital. They don't have the savings to do that right now. Yeah. So you would avoid emerging market stocks right now because there's still more pain to come is what you're saying. Yes, especially commodity exporting um, the ones we mentioned, economies. Yes. And then the domestically in, in China, even though it may be growing at a slower pace, the numbers are still quite staggering as to how big China is and how it's growing. So give me a sense of going forward, uh, the growth you seek in, in Chinese millennials and retail sales? Yeah, um, so so this year, as you see, China's GDP growing at 7%, and, and next year, 65 to 6.8. So these are still very high growth rates. And when you look at where the growth is, it's really in um, wages. For example, Chinese disposable, disposable income is still growing at high single digits. And the, but then the, the spending is going to be focused on Chinese millennials because the Chinese, because when you look at all the generations in Chinese history or in the modern history of China, none of these cohorts were actively spending what they made. They were actively saving. So the Chinese savings rate overall is, is still at about 50%, but it's skewed towards the older generation. So the Chinese millennials in general, they're more educated, they have a, they are they have a better sense of Western culture. Uh, they're more worldly, and they love brand Western brand names, and they're not really savers because their parents are able to support them as well. So the Chinese millennials are going to be the major consumer going forward. Now, when you look at how how big this is, you no, know, I I can't 
tell you how big this is going to be because I look at how many there are. There are over 400 million Chinese millennials. So these are the folks in China who were born between 1980 to 2000. And the number of Chinese millennials at over 400 million is actually bigger than the size of the combined working population of the US and Western Europe. And right now, millennials in China only earn about $3 to $4 an hour. And, and so there's going to be a tremendous amount of growth uh, within this pocket of the global economy going forward. And interestingly- Partly because their, their wages are going to be going up. They're going to be earning more than 3 or $4 an hour and becoming more middle class and having more disposable income is what you're saying. Correct, correct. I, I think their, their incomes will, will, will at least double over the next 10 years and still growing at high single digits every year. So, and it's not, it's not really anything out of the ordinary. It's not a radical prediction by any means because many Chinese millennials are, have a college education. They can speak English. They're worldly. They understand global brands. So they're able to compete in the global um, high tech, even high tech and high edu- highly educated environment um, that 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 global workers will will need to grow going forward. But there there is a problem in China as far as age because they they're an aging population as well, and because they had the one child policy for a long time, there aren't enough younger people to support a lot of older people, right? Correct. You know, right right now the demographics pyramid, so to speak, in China is still much much better than the uh, demographic pyramids in Western Europe and and the U.S. Now by 2020, that, that's going to start to shift where uh, assuming U.S. immigration um, keeps rising, assuming uh, the U.S. birth rate doesn't drop, basically um, basically the, the Chinese um, dependent ratio, so to speak, basically the amount of 65-year-olds over the, divided by the working population is going to be below that of, of the U.S. But, there's so much momentum. There are just so many millennials in China right now, and their earnings are still growing at high single digits versus a flat rate here in the United States. That it's going to become, I believe, it's going to become one of the biggest, if not the biggest, group of consumers going forward, and that's going to have tremendous implications. When you think of how they've grown compared to, you know, 40 years ago when the Cultural Revolution and Nobody could buy anything, and there was a, what, what a change it's been for China. It's really quite amazing when you look at the relatively recent uh, transformation. It is, it is, and and it's still transforming quite a bit. You know, we we like to say some of the how 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 some of the U.S. brands have already performed. For example, Yum Brands. That that's the um, that that's kind of like the the main example that we cite, and also Starbucks, right? But you know, Yum Brands is already it's already getting less popular in China right now. It, it resonates with Gen Xs, it resonates with baby boomers in China, but it's not resonating anymore with the Chinese millennials. So now you have to move to other brands um, going forward. That's where the, the, the growth is, yes. Correct. Okay, we're going to take a break, and after that we're going to come back with some specific uh, stock recommendations based on what Henry has uh, seen. Um, my guest this hour is Henry Toh. He's the Chief Investment Officer at CB Capital Advisors, uh, based in Newport Beach, California. We'll be back after this.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Henry Toe, Chief Investment Officer at CB Capital Advisors based in Newport Beach, California. Welcome back to the show, Henry. Great to be here, Jordan. So we have a, a sense now of the, the world and as you see it, and uh, there's this big growth in China with the millennials, even though things may be slowing down. So let's look at some of the stock picks you would like. Uh, you have one in the telecom area. What, what do you like in the telecom area? Jordan, I think you have to be really, really selective overall with where you're picking your stocks within the Chinese economy because, for example, retail sales are still growing. E-commerce sales are still booming. Um, on the other hand, durables are not doing well, but you know things like aspirational spending, for example, like you said, telecom. I like Right now, I like China Mobile. It's the biggest um, mobile company, actually, not just in China, in the world. It has a 60% market share on the Chinese market. It is the fastest growing wireless market in the world. For the first six months of this year, China Mobile added about 100 million 4G customers. And they have, currently, they have about 820 million customers right now. And they also had a head start, 12-month head start on this 4G rollout against its two other national competitors. So China has an oligopolistic uh, market which is dominated by three wireless telecom companies and China Mobile is a dominant company in, in that in that industry. So you so like I, them over the other two? You like them over China Unicom and China Telecom because oh, they're yeah, more dominant? Yeah. yeah, no doubt in my mind. You know, it had a, you know, believe it or not, China only started rolling out its 4G service at the end of 2013, so only about 18 months ago. And China Mobile had a 12-month head start um, ahead of its two national competitors. So they they are already ro- they are rolling out 700,000. Uh, they they rolled out 700,000 4G stations last year. They're rolling out one million of them this year. And I am looking. I'm targeting 250 million 4G subscribers by the end of this year. And by the end of 2016, they should have about. 50% of the Chinese 4G market, which is over 400 million subscribers. Um, they also have $70 billion, billion in net cash. So 
after debt is netted out, they have $70 billion in net cash. They have, they're throwing off tons of cash. They're, they're yielding at about 3.1% 3, right now in terms of their dividend yield, but they can easily increase it to 5% without any impairment on their balance sheet. And how is the stock of China Mobile done during all the recent volatility? You know, they're actually up this year. Um, they're actually up 5% on a year-to-date basis. So by far, they're outperforming a lot of things in China this year. So you're saying long-term, this is really a pure play on the growth of the millennials as they're going to use more cell phones and so on. Correct. This is a pure, pure long-term play, pure play on Chinese millennial spending going forward. And then another one is in the retail, the e-commerce area. What do you like there? You know, e-commerce is still booming. Um, China, the Chinese e-commerce market is the biggest one in the world. Um, about 50% bigger than the U.S. e-commerce market. And the leader, as we all know, is Alibaba. This is this, this more of a controversial uh, pick right now because of what's going on um, w- within the Chinese consumer spending slowdown. But, you know, Chinese, Chinese retail sales just came out um, this weekend. It's still up 10% year over year. You know, Alibaba just hit an all-time low due to a slowdown and also valuation concerns. And also you have the September 20th lockup expiration, which means a lot of shares that I held by insiders could be sold. So you're seeing a lot of selling pressure because of that right now. But when you look at how, how quickly the e-commerce market in China is expanding and the fact that Alibaba is the dominant leader, you know, their gross merchandise value in 2014 was $361 billion, which is greater than the combined gross uh, GMV of Amazon, gross merchandise value of both Amazon and eBay combined. So, I, and Alibaba is still growing um, much more quickly than, than eBay by far. So it's and another, from your point of view, a play on the US, uh, on the Chinese millennials is what you're saying. Another pure play on, on Chinese millennials and also just in general, not just Chinese millennials, but also the fact that Americans, if they want to sell in China going forward, Alibaba is one of the platforms they could sell through going forward. Yeah. And then you have a third uh, play, which is in the gaming industry, uh, also a play on Chinese millennials. What is that one? Yeah, the, 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 fa- the final pick that we have is Las Vegas Sands. And Las Vegas Sands gets more than half of these revenues from uh, the Macau market, which is the biggest casino gaming market in the world. They, and then Las Vegas Sands gets about 20% of their revenues from the Singapore market, which has been doing very well. So, so as we, as you know, um, since February of last year, the Macau casino market has has been declining due, due to the government crackdown on corruption and also a, basically a lack of infrastructure within the former Portuguese, Portuguese colony for the mass market gamers. So um, the casino market in Macau is going through a transition phase right now where it's transitioning from a kind of like a VIP dominant market where you have a lot of high rollers coming in and where, you know, companies like Wynn make most of their money. And now it's shifting to more of a Las Vegas based mass market, um, mass market um, base where casinos in Macau are not just appealing to the high rollers, but they're trying to make it into more of an entertainment slash business convention center as well. So I, I think if anyone can do it as Macau, if anyone in Asia can do it as Macau. And when you look at the market size in Macau, within a few hours commute of Macau is seven times the size of the Las Vegas Strip. So there's still a lot of room for Macau to grow going forward. Again, it's a very long-term pure play on, on our part. And we also, when you look at the infrastructure that's being built 
in the Macau, for example, there's a light rapid transfer system that's being built that will be operational by early next year. That's going to alleviate some traffic issues in Macau. There's also a bridge that connects Macau with Hong Kong and, and mainland China. That's going to reduce travel time. Right now, if you want to go to Hong Kong or go to Macau from Hong Kong, it takes you four hours on the hydrofoil. Uh, after the completion of this bridge in 2017, it's going to just take uh, literally 40 minutes. So when you look at the valuations as well, it has a forward price to earnings of around 16, very sustainable dividend yield of 4.9%, free cash flow yield of 7%. And most importantly, right now, Las Vegas Sands is trying to complete its St. Regis Tower, which is a combination of a hotel and also condos. That's going to be completed in December. They're constructing a casino right now called the Sands Parisian, 3,000 rooms, 250 tables. That's going to be completed by early in 2016. After the completion of these two construction projects, the free cash flow of Las Vegas Sands is going to go through the roof. So I like Las Vegas Sands. Uh, I think um, they may all, miss. All three, of these, all three of these choices, Las Vegas Sands, Alibaba, and China Mobile, are, are controversial in today's market because of what's happened in China, right? They are. They, they are controversial. They're hard to buy right now because there's a lot of negative sentiment right now in these stocks. Uh, but, that, but to me, that's a perfect time to buy. Now, with some of these names, they may go down a little bit more in the short term. Las Vegas Sands, I think they may actually miss earnings um, in late October when they when they announced for quarter earnings, um, primarily because other part, other visitations from other Asian countries are slowing down as well because countries like like Malaysia and Indonesia they're slowing down as well. So those that's going to that's going to have a short term negative impact on Macau. But I think um, in the long run, I think all these three stocks will rise. Will give you well. Thank you so much. It's been very fascinating. My guest this hour has been Henry Toe. He's the chief investment officer at CB Capital Advisors, financial services firm mostly serving institutions but also wealthy individuals based in Newport Beach, California. Thanks so much for being a guest on the, on the show, Henry. Thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answers Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.